Good morning, everyone. Well, I'm going to move into this series uh, so I can get, get you out of here before 1 o'clock. <laughs> Somebody's like, how am I going to play in my escape right now? Uh, we're in our series, and it's called It's Party Time. Because it is party time, and, and not partying like you're thinking. You're like, oh my gosh, what is this guy preaching? What have I walked into? But I'm telling you, it really is party time for us as believers. And if you're, if you're trying to discover what it means to be a believer, let me tell you, this series is going to help you a lot. Uh, we talked last, two weeks ago about the Feast of Trumpets. I've been explaining different feasts. The seven, there are seven feasts that God designed for his people his people to see him sending his son, see his coming son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he orchestrated seven feasts so that we couldn't help but to see him, so that the Jews, his, his original children, couldn't help but to see Christ when he came. However, in all that planning and all that preparation and all that laboring, even though God had designed it for his people, they still missed him. And I, and I think we may see that sometimes even in our own lives, because in all of our doing, all of our works, and all of our laboring, sometimes we just miss God in the moment. And, and so God is trying to grab our attention through some of these feasts. He's, been, he's designed it so that we would for thousands, hundreds, and thousands of generations, uh, years. But now it's a different unveil, uh, unveiling of this feast. And so I want to explain these feasts to you. And today we're talking about the Feast of Atonement, the Feast of Atonement. And so what is atonement? Well, it's, it's simply put, it's, it's reconciliation between God and humankind. But there has to be something that takes place for that atonement to be active, to be real. And because of the fall of man, there was a separation between God and, God and man. Because of the, the disobedience and the unwillingness to follow, follow God, there was separation brought. However, even in that, God was already trying to point his people to understand, it's okay, I'm still going to bring a sacrifice. I'm still going to bring reconciliation. I'm still going to go after your heart. And so what does he do? Adam and Eve found, realized that, oh, we're naked. And so ashamed, they went and hid themselves. They went and actually put fig leaves, wore fig leaves as clothes. Two things there. Whenever they went and hid themselves, God came, knowing what was in their heart, said, where are you? As if he didn't know. And sometimes God is coming to you and saying, hey, where are you at in that? Where are you at in your thinking? Hey, where are you? Haven't had much time with you lately. Where are you? Here's the other part. They went and put fig leaves on as clothes. Anybody ever touched a fig leaf? Uh, it's very prickly, and it hurts. <laughs> And so sometimes the very things that we put on actually hurts us worse than, than, what, than just coming to the Lord and coming clean. But in that, he still provides. We see the next thing that he does, he takes an animal, sacrifices it, and now he gives them clothing of animal hide. So a sacrifice clothed them from their previous sin. This is all a picture that he would one day point to Christ's coming, and in the midst of that in the garden moment and Christ's coming is this feast that he be, these feasts that he begins to plan out. This one specifically for atonement, and that's the picture of it. We sin, God does something in spite anyway to reconcile us back to him because it is his heart that we come and we are in relationship with him. Simple. And guess what? We can't earn it. We can't work hard enough for it. All we have to do is receive it by grace. 
And so the Day of Atonement, what is the Day of Atonement? On the Day of Atonement, there are no parties, no feasts. Well, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about the feasts. There's no festivals. It's a feast unlike what we understand, just like these are parties like, unlike we understand. There's nothing but fasting and the Sabbath rest. It's resting from what you would normally do, your duties, your ideas, your thoughts, what you think is best. And so he's, in all of these feasts, there's a Sabbath rest that's intertwined into every one of them. Why? Two things. One, he wants us to rest from our busyness, rest from our duties, rest from the things that we want to do so we will intentionally draw near to him and begin to focus on him, his presence, and what he desires for us. So we Sabbath rest. And so in this, there's fasting. And so he shifts because when we're fasting, we begin to focus on what's most important. All of a sudden, after we get through the soulish and fleshly desires of, oh, I'm suffering, I want food, I'm, I'm being malnourished, I think I'm going to die. If you've ever fasted, these are thoughts that you go through and you start to believe some of those for a while and it makes it worse. But it's our soul that's saying, hey, feed me. I'm used to living by the flesh. But what he's saying is when we fast, we, we, we overcome those things, and what happens is the spirit that he gives us that the Scripture says that he so jealously longs for, now it becomes active and says, hey, I guess I need to take over because you're not going to feed the soul with the fleshly, the fleshly goods. And so our spirit is awakened. The Holy Spirit, this is what Jesus said, I'm going to send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit. He begins to speak to get our attention, say, hey, now I got your attention because you're not living by the flesh. And so our spirit is beginning to become in tune with the Holy Spirit. And now the soul, instead of leading our spirit, comes under, comes under our spirit and says, okay, I guess I'll be spirit-led now. This is the design for God's people. This is God's design for his children. This is his design for those who are in, who are in Christ. And so in fasting, this begins to take place. What happens? We begin to, after our lamenting, we begin to hear from God. And our souls are nourished. This is why Jesus said, Hey, whenever his disciple says, hey, you got to eat, Jesus says, my bread is to do the will of the Father. This is why Jesus is the manna from heaven. This is why Jesus is the bread of life. And so it's a constant shift from, hey, get out of your fleshly, soulish thinking. Hey, let's just get spiritual a little bit. And these are all spiritual truths that God begins to break down through these feasts. And so the feast is no longer about me feeding my, my soul and my flesh and my appetite, but rather it's actually pleasing my appetite of spirituality because now I'm feasting on the Lord. Somebody's like, I'm not showing up to that party. <laughs> I missed that one. I'll go to the next one and the one right before that where we actually party. <laughs> but that's the one I'm missing. Well, Jews, the Jews actually knew this as a day of reconciliation. This is part of this feast. They're pointing them to the day of reconciliation for them, which is atonement. Well, this follows, this is 10 days following the Feast of Trumpets that we talked about, the trumpets. It's blowing of the shofar. It's an announcing, hey, the Lord is coming. It's an announcing of the new year. It's an announcing of a new season we're going into. It's also announcing for the Jews that God is going to open up the book of life. And he's going to see if the Jews, his children, have done more good than they have bad. And for these 10 days, the Jews would go into uh, repentance, the days of awe is what it's called. They start repenting and recounting all the things that they said to their spouse or to their children or they did to their neighbor or, they, or how they cheated someone or how they, whatever it was and how they lied and how they stole it. And they, I repent, I repent, let me go serve somebody, let me go feed a homeless, let me go. 
Anybody ever fallen into that kind of religion? Yeah, we do. Because we're, we begin to be works-based. When, when we are allowing our flesh to lead our soul rather than being spirit-led, works becomes our mentality. And then we make people work for our love in the same way we think we have to work for God's love. I don't know why the Lord just gives you a different message and different, yeah. hmm, okay. So, so the, the, the Jews were like, okay, this is a day of reconciliation. We know that our God one day is going to wipe away sin from the earth. Well, they, they see this through the, the prophet Zechariah, uh, sorry, the, the, the teachings of Zechariah 3, 9 says, I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. I will remove this, the sin of this land in a single day. Now, we know that that actually will happen because of other, other, other verses we're going to talk about. One day when Jesus returns as a second coming, he'll eradicate sin. Through atonement for us, he removed sin from having power over our lives. The law of sin, we're no longer under. But one day, there will be a day when Jesus returns in his second coming that sin just won't exist. Hallelujah. We should be very happy about that. And so what a beautiful picture and aspect of this traditional uh, or biblical Jewish culture is the sense of family as well. And so we as Americans in Western culture, we think individually, uh, individualism. We think my church, my calling, my role. This is what mine. We think me. But in the Jewish culture, they're very community-driven. So when we read the Bible, we think from a, a place of, well, this is about me. This is what I should do. This is what I want to do. This is what God's telling me to do without the understanding of how this may affect we. Well, in the Jewish culture, in the God's, in the God's design, according to his, his people, his children, I'm shifting now because we're all his children. He wants us to look and read the Bible and understand and believe through an aspect of we. Well, if I make this decision, how will it affect we? If I decide to do this, and I feel like the Lord is moving me to do this, well, how will that affect the, the population? It's not about a singular individual. It's about the pluralism. The pluralism. It's about us instead of me. It, it's hard for us. But this is the way that God has designed because we're a body instead of a... Okay. And so whenever he, whenever he's designed the movement of his people and for his purposes, it has everything to do with how it affects the masses. In order for God's people to experience his mercy, death was required. And I'm, I'm, I'm building on this. Would you keep these different steps in, in mind? Death was required. Remember, we talked about the sacrifice for Adam and Eve to for, for, for a restoration of relationship to cover their sins, to bring and cover their physical bodies as well. And several times in Leviticus, in the Old Testament, in 16, we read this collective atonement. Verse 16 says, uh, atonement was for the uncleanness and rebellion of Israel, whatever their sins have been. He said, whatever they've done. Like God's not sitting there sitting there weighing it, oh, you did this, or you did this, mm, I don't know, you're going to have to do this a little bit more, you're going to have to repent a little bit more for this. And this. He didn't have time for that. <laughs> not that he moves in time, he moves outside of it. It's not an issue for him. Whatever the sin that had been committed for the people, God's people, this, the atonement took care of it. This is also when they think of this, this sense of community, when one person would not honor the Sabbath, they put them outside of the city because they were like, no, you're not going to bring that wrath on us because you choose to go your own way. They understand God. 
They understood how he works, but they also understood that this one sacrifice would atone for all of them. And it was God's design to form their thinking to see that there's going to be an atonement one day. And when that atonement has taken place, that sacrifice for atonement has taken place, it's not for just one person. It's for all mankind. So Leviticus 16, 17 tells us that Aaron is making, this is Moses' homeboy brother, says is making atonement for him, his household, and the whole community of Israel, not just himself. He's thinking communal. Verse 20 says the priest was to confess over it, the goat, the sacrificial goat. Uh, there's a sacrificial goat and the scapegoat, actually. The scapegoat, all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sin. So all of the sin would be confessed over the sacrifice. Leviticus 16.34 says, atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So it's, it's, it's community-based. It's a get outside of the individualization. The, the day of atonement provided a way for their sins to be cleansed through the death of animal sacrifice rather than themselves. Thank God that you don't have to be sacrificed for your sins. <laughs> Leviticus 16, 14, 15 says, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat. I have mercy seat highlighted on purpose for a reason. It says, On the east side, and before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. God was giving, giving, uh, giving Aaron a, a pattern of how to atone with the blood sacrificed for the sins inside of the holiest of holies, so there, there, everything had a specific pattern to it for a purpose. And we're going to get there. Just hang tight. Then he, verse 15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside of the veil. Remember veil. Do with that blood as he did with the, the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. All right, remember veil, remember mercy seat, remember the blood has to touch the mercy seat. Hebrews 9.22, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission being that of sin. There's no removal of sin without the shedding of blood, plain and simple. And God has designed that ever since the beginning of time. And he set feasts around that so that we would see it. Not only would we see it, the feast would be set aside from fleshly thinking because I'm going to sacrifice flesh and give you a spiritual awakening. Romans 6.23, here's the benefit, here's, here's, this is great. For the wages of sin is death. See, that's what we deserved. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because, we, because of what Christ did, we don't get this. That's called atonement right there. And where, there, where was atonement made? In Exodus 25, 17 through 18, it says this, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half shall be its width. For all you builders out there, it's about 47 inches by 27 inches, something, somewhere around that. So about four feet by a little over two feet is the size of this, this, this uh, box, this ark. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. So you have this mercy seat, this box. It's Two and a half by one and a half, two and a half by one and a half cubits. And then you got an angel, cherubim, 
over here, and you got an angel cherubim over here. All right, he's explaining how to make it. And he's tell, he told them that they had to make it with acacia wood. Acacia wood. What is acacia wood? I have no idea. Well, in the, it's, a, it's one of the only trees that actually thrives in dry places in the desert. It literally drives its roots down to find some moisture somewhere. And as it's doing that, it's also creating this huge umbrella so that it can pr provide for birds and animals uh, and different various animals shade. Not only that, it, has, it produces these tiny little leaflets that are full of water so that animals that need food from long destinations in the desert can come. Not only can they have food, but they actually have water. This is amazing. So it provides covering and it provides sustenance. And God says, that's what I want you to make my, my, my house out of, my ark out of, rather. That's what I want you to make my mer the mercy seat out of. One, something that covers and provides. In Exodus 25, 21 and 22 says, you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. The ark is what was, was built, out of the, built out of Acacia. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. So God's nature is to speak things for you to do by faith. And then he says, as you do those things, I'm going to give you some testimony so that you can put in your memory box. As you do those things that I told you to do that you didn't quite understand when I told you to do it, and I didn't give you the full picture because I needed you to walk with me in the process of doing, I'm going to have some testimony, some accomplishments, some things that I'm going to do some things that you couldn't do on your own, and you're going to know you couldn't do it on your own, and it's going to do some things for you to keep you propelling forward in the things that I've called and destined you to do. And when I do those things, I want you to put it in your testimony box. Oh, you ain't feeling me now, but you will. Yeah. And then verse 22, it said, and there, I'll, there I will meet you. There I will meet you. As you were doing the thing that I called you to do, I will meet with you and I will speak with you on the mercy seat. I'm going to meet you right there. I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, the two angels. Now, I don't know if you've ever put this two and two together, if you've been reading, if you've read this and then you've read the book of John in the New Testament, but Mary Magdalene, she was lamenting because Jesus had gone to the cross, died, they put him in a tomb and rolled the stone back over the tomb. So she goes the next day, or two days later, she's there and she's lamenting, she's crying and she's sorrowful and she's weeping and she's at the tomb. And it's like all of a sudden she realizes, wait a minute, this thing's open. Like it didn't dawn on her when she was running to the tomb, when she saw the tomb, that the, door, that the, the, the rock was moved. She was so caught up in her own grief, she didn't even recognize what God had been doing. And sometimes we get so caught up in our grief, our woe is me, our selfish acts, our what about me, our poverty-stricken mindset, the things that we lost, and we forget to see what God is doing in the midst of it. And the moment she does, she peeks in, and what she sees is she sees two cherubim, one on one side and one on the other, because she sees the mercy seat. She sees the mercy seat and the blood of the sacrificial lamb had atoned and it was on the mercy seat. Oh, that's really good. So she goes in, she sees, oh, mercy has been provided. I will not get what I deserve. 
How, what about our atonement? As the Levitical priests performed the rituals for the Day of Atonement, they were proclaiming the miraculous truth that God would mercifully forgive the sins of his people that year despite their continued sin. Despite the fact that they were going to sin the next day, God, through the sacrifice performed by the Levitical priest, would say, you are atoned for, continue on. What they didn't know, that each year when they entered into the holiest of holies, they were, the high priests were proclaiming the gospel. They didn't know that what they were doing was actually proclaiming th something that God would do ultimately and finally through the sacrificial lamb called Jesus Christ. All they would do were doing was that God said to do this, I'm going to perform this, and I hope that he speaks and he shows up. What they didn't know, because they were so caught up in their duties, that God was pointing to something that was a greater sacrifice. What they didn't know, that God was trying to give them insight and understanding of what he was ultimately going to do to restore them to him, even as they continued to sin. Sometimes we forget that even though we've come to Christ and, and our sins have been forgiven, and yet we go and sin, sometimes we forget that those sins have been atoned for, and God is not putting guilt and shame and condemnation and worry and anxiety on us for us to carry, but sometimes we forget because those things have become an identity. And instead of going to him and bringing them as a sacrifice and repenting for them, we embrace them and we, we carry guilt and shame and we forget that those sins have been forgiven. Atonement has been made. Hebrews 9, 12 says this, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place where the sacrifice must be, must be, the blood of the sacrifice must be placed on the mercy seat, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Isn't that good? Thank you, Lord. And like the high priest entered the holy place, Jesus went before God the Father to atone for our sins with his own blood. And instead of a goat, he was, he was the one who was shed for us. Despite there being no temple, he restored the meaning of the Day of Atonement. Jesus Christ himself fulfilled the Day of Atonement, this thing called Yom Kippur. He became the Yom Kippur for us so that we be restored back to God the Father. He thought and knew it is because of the community I must do something sacrificial. It was for the people of the pasture that he must go to the, to the cross so that relationship between the people of the pasture and God the Father can be restored yet again. He understood that it wasn't about me. And he understood that my decisions and my heart throb and the things, the passions inside of me can't be about me and truly carry the heart of God. I am preaching, Pastor. 
Sometimes you got to give yourself some self-talk in here. Zechariah 13:1 says, "In the day of fountain, in the day, in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for all the the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness." Our life and eternity depend on whether we know Him and have accepted Him as the true Messiah. It's not good enough to know about Christ. It's not good enough to know about the cross. It's not good enough to know about resurrection, but it's to know him experientially, knowing that he has set me free from the things that I carry, the desires of my flesh, and he has set me free to a spiritual awakening and a spiritual relationship with God the Father. Isaiah 53, 12 says, he was numbered with transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. Remember the scapegoat and the sacrificial lamb? He confessed all the sins of the people of, the, of Israel on the goat. He became, because he bore the sin, he was numbered with the transgressors. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, remember the mercy seat, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he, which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you can't earn this thing. He did it anyway because of his heart for you and me to restore us back relationally to the Father. All we got to do is receive it. And if we're going to be like him, how much more should we embrace this place and this role with our brothers and sisters? Regardless of who did what and what happened and, and who said what and how they said it, it's a, it's a place of embracing forgiveness, seeking all we can do to have peace with others, restoration and reconciliation. This was the example of God the Father by sending his son to bring restoration, a selfless act Thankfully, the Messiah made the perfect sacrifice once and for all. There's no need to bring another sacrifice. And that also means there's no need for you to beat yourself up. There's no need for you to condemn yourself. There's no need for you to receive that. There's no need for you to walk in unforgiveness towards yourself. There's no need to embrace things that say, I'm not good enough. I should be punished because that's for the cross. Leviticus 23, 31 says, this is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. God's intention was that forever we would have this a reminder to help us and humble ourselves and address our shortcomings and to celebrate his complete sacrifice of atonement. So for them, it was, while it be a feast of atonement, for us, it's a lifestyle of understanding my sins have been sacrificed for. They are atone, I am atoned. I am restored back to God the Father. So yes, I am a human. There's a human part of me, and there's a very spiritual part of me. And the human part of me does not always agree with the very spiritual part of me. Yes, I will sin, but I have atonement because of the sacrifice once and for all. And all I have to do is come and repent, confess to the Lord, and say, I can't do this. I can't move myself beyond this. I need you. I need the forgiveness that you've already provided, help me, Lord. Hallelujah, that it's that easy. And here's how we know the benefit. 
Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51 said, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split from top to bottom. This, this, this veil was many inches wide. It was the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place is where this acacia ark would be, where the mercy seat would be, where the Levitical priest would have to go in and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for the sake of atonement. But Jesus, whenever he died on this cross, gave his spirit up, he, then the earth shook, the veil torn, Jesus saying, listen, you don't have to worry, you don't have to have a sacrifice for you anymore, and you don't have to be separated from the holiest of holies. I'm giving you access to the presence and the power of God. <laughs> Reminder, the Sabbath rest is always wrapped inside of these feasts so that we rest from our works, our ways of handling situations, our thoughts of how things should go, our things of what, what we want others to do, our thoughts of how we should uh, handle ourselves and handle our, our own sins, all of these things, how we should live our own lives. He sets this time. He says, hey, I want to give you vision. I need you to rest from those works. I need to give you some clarity. I need to give you my design. I need to give you some info. I need to give you some, some, some passion. I need to give you some purpose. I need to give you this vision because I have provision, but because I want you to do this thing, but it's in the process of doing this thing with him, listening to him along the way that he builds the testimony for you. He builds the testimony for the generations that come after you. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20 says this, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Hallelujah. Verse 20, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And without the Old Testament, we couldn't understand that the veil separated God's people from his wrath. And without the New Testament, we can never know that the veil of Christ, the, the veil of what's torn by Christ to make room for us so that we don't need to be worried about the wrath of God anymore. And once again, the Old Testament and the New Testament work together like interlocking pieces bringing us a fullness of understanding of God's mercy and his grace and his power and his presence and his love for us. He is on our side. He is not mad at us. Hebrews 4, 14 and 16 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's already done it. We don't need to try to work it up. All we have to do is receive it. Next verse, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. In all these things, he bore our griefs, Scripture says. Your anxiety, your worries, your depression, your marriage problems, your financial issues, your, your child problems, your kid problems, your work problems, your whatever problems, 
He understands. He, he relates. And what he's saying is there is a way out, and I'm about to give it to you. You don't have to hold on to it. You don't have to work it out yourself. All you have to do is boldly come to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace when? In my time of need. Hallelujah. What does that look like, Pastor Nathan? Oh, I sinned. I didn't work. I came up short. I thought things I shouldn't have thought. I said things I shouldn't have said. I did things I shouldn't have done. And instead of beating myself up and living in such a way that actually moves me from the presence of God because I'm listening now to the enemy, the adversary, because he's always going to take me away from God. I boldly come because I know his promises are good. I boldly come to the throne of grace behind the veil into the holiest of holies to the mercy seat, to the, the presence of God. I boldly come and say, because I know you're such a good God, I confess even the darkest areas of my life, my soul, my, my thought life that Nobody even knows even the closest people to my heart. I confess these things to you because I'm tired of them having power over me. And in that moment, God says, because now you're ready to hand it over, I will take it and give you healing. Amen. That is mercy. You don't get what you deserve. You get, and the grace is you get things you didn't even deserve. And that's always to the good. Three things about grace you need to know. Grace is you, you didn't deserve it, but he gave it to you anyway. Grace is, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you things and an ability that you didn't otherwise have before, but because you are now ready, because you are coming to me, and now because now we are restored, and because you trust me of my goodness, I'm going to give you some things and for, for according to your purpose and your design, because I've created you, I've created you to do a good work. You are Christ's workmanship, created to do the good work which he created beforehand. So now that you're ready to come to him and boldly, you're not going to hide anything from him, Adam and Eve. Now you know, where are you? I'm coming right over here to let go of this stuff I've been carrying that actually belongs to you so that I can find healing in my time of need. Now he's like, now I can grace you with the abilities to do the things that I've called you to do. Now we can work on testimony. And the third part is just that. He begins to empower you with grace to move beyond that sin that used to so easily entangle you, to move beyond, and he actually begins to open up doors that no man can shut. And he begins to close doors to help you that no man can open. And he begins to guide your life and become, you become so in tune because you start to understand this thing called Sabbath rest as a lifestyle of resting from your works, your ways, and you th things you think should happen and how it should happen and when it should happen to being in his presence and being in tune with him and in step with him. He graces you, giving you things you don't deserve. He graces you with the opportunities that you didn't otherwise have because you weren't ready for them. They would have messed you up because they were too great for you. And then he gives you the empowering grace to accomplish every every stronghold, every issue, every adversary, adversity that's going to come your way because it's going to come your way, but it's okay. You've got a, a father that's going to give you testimony and he's going to give you the things that you need to succeed. <laughs> Hallelujah. And all I had to do was come boldly because he's a good father to that throne of grace and obtain the mercy from the junk I've been hiding even from myself and receive the help. And he's saying, now you're ready. Hallelujah. So we should be celebrating and partying. And it's a spiritual feast that we should be feasting on. Nobody, somebody want to come to that party now? 
All right, so we celebrate and give offering and thanksgiving back to the Lord because it is not only his heart that we have been atoned for, but it is for our families. It's for the community around us. The things that he does in you, he does it for the we. I need you and you need me because we can do some things together. Can you hear me? Come on, somebody. Worship team, where you at? Come on up here. Let's get this thing started. Can I pray for you? Come on, as they're, as they're coming forward, let me just pray for you. Come on, everybody, stand up on your feet. Don't, get, don't be lazy on me. Be celebrating. Hey, woo! Hey, where you at? Yes. Father, we just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that we can boldly come before you. Yes, for the things that happened in the, the fight in the car on the way here. Thank you, Lord, for, for healing from that. Thank you for deliverance from that. Thank you for freedom from that. Thank you for the grace and the mercy, Lord. And all we got to do is practice this. Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the atonement. Thank you for your sacrificial son. Thank you for doing the things that we couldn't do on our own. And right now, we just repent for whatever sin that needed to be, that needed to be covered by the, the singular atonement. Father, we live in this world. You know our, you know our heart. You know the... You know the, the, the depravity of man, and you love us anyway. You know the depravity of man in our tendencies, and you sent your son to die for those depravities anyway. And so, Father, we rejoice, we're thankful, we're excited, we're happy, because there's so much that we couldn't do on our own, and you did it for us anyway. Thank you that we don't have to work for it, we don't have to be anxious about it, we don't have to be worry about it, we don't have to be full of fear, we don't have to carry grief, we don't have to carry guilt, Lord, thank you. Because you knew anyway, and you sent your son for a singular and a final atonement. Thank you, Lord, that you sent the atonement for our marriage and the things that come in between us, Lord, all we have to do is individually come to you and repent to receive help in our time of need. Thank you that when we're going through financial struggle, we come to you, and in our time of need, we receive. Thank you that you have better plans than we have in our strongholds in our mind because you bring us help in our times of need. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us where we were because you bring us help in our time of need. So, Father, we praise you today, we celebrate you, we give you all the glory and all the honor, and Lord, we want to be a beacon of light because of the atonement, the sacrifice, the things that you did to give us everything we don't deserve. So, Lord, help us to shine your glory and your light into the community, into our workplaces, and everywhere we go. In Jesus' mighty name, can I get a good amen? Amen. amen.